And turn with me to John chapter 18. Let's pray before we read God's word. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So John 18 and verse 1. Now when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. But Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests, and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. A Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Then it was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have not, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of the soldiers and their captain and the soldiers of the Jews, officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. May the Lord bless the reading his holy and inerrant word. The Bible says that the God of the Bible is a God of wrath and it's a very unpopular thing to say but I want to reflect on the wrath of God in light of the cross. John's passage, this passage, John 18, is one of the four accounts of Jesus's arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before our Lord was put to death. When you first look at this, it does not seem to be much about wrath and anger, but it really is. And what I want us to see from this passage is that God's wrath is warranted. Secondly, that it is controlled. And thirdly, it is absorbed. So warranted, controlled, absorbed wrath. First of all, it is warranted. The first three verses tell us that when our Lord and his disciples went to Gethsemane, Judas, who was engineering the, the arrest, he knew they would go there. And so verse 3 says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. First notice the range of people who are coming to arrest Jesus now. Jew, Gentile, Roman soldiers, officials from the chief priests, Pharisees. Not only is it Jew and Gentile, but it's the working class and the cultural elite. 
The priests and the Pharisees were the elite. The Roman soldiers would have been working class. So it's also both religious and irreligious. The Roman soldiers were not particularly religious. Or put it another way, there are pagans and so-called Bible believers. Some anti-Semitic groups over the years have constantly tried to pin Jesus' death solely on the Jews. But over and over again in the Gospels we see, deliberately I am sure, that John is showing us that the whole range of classes, the whole range of races as it were, the whole range of religion, irreligious and religious, they were coming to attack Jesus. And that is the main point. The main point is that they're coming with weapons, they're coming with chains, they're coming to arrest the Son of God. Very soon we're going to see Jesus mocked, beaten, tortured, murdered. So this is in narrative depicting what the Bible teaches as a propositional truth. What is the propositional truth? What is the theological truth? Or Romans 5 verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Enemies. Romans 8 verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Enmity is hatred. And it just, it just doesn't say that our minds and our hearts in their natural state have enmity for God. It says that our minds are enmity toward God. And what is being depicted here with the weapons and the clubs all coming to arrest the Son of God and torture and murder him. What has been depicted in narrative, in story form, in reality, in history. It is what is taught theologically by the Bible. That is that we do not just disbelieve in God. We do not just resist God. We are angry at him. We are angry at him. We are lethally angry at him. We hate him. Every human being, until the Holy Spirit changes, is an enemy of God. And, and we hate him. And I know what you think, well, I don't really relate to that. Some say, I do not really know if I believe in God, so how can I say I hate him? Or some might say, I, do not, I know I don't believe in God as I should, I know I don't have enough faith, or I don't obey him like I should, but I don't hate him. Well, just think about it for a minute. Just think about it. First of all, the human heart pushes back and hates anything that threatens its self-sovereignty, the mastery of its own life. I think many times we think that if we'd have been there, if we'd have been there, we would have supported Jesus. Really? Because what the human heart wants more than anything is to be its own master, to be its own lord. And anything that threatens that triggers anger. I've always, I've always been struck by Augustine's classic illustration in his Confessions. 
And Augustine is reflecting that when he was a small boy, he stole pears from his neighbour's orchard. And he's reflecting years later, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Why did I steal those pears? And he said, I wasn't hungry. And he said, I don't like pears. So he said, so if he wasn't hungry and he didn't like pears, why did he steal the pears? And Augustine said, years later, I remember why, because I was told I shouldn't. He said, I was told it was forbidden. And he said, I wanted them because I shouldn't. In, in other words, the prohibition against pears for Augustine as a young child triggered that part of his heart which said, nobody tells me what to do. No one tells me what to do. I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my soul. And if a prohibition against pears triggers that, what do you think Jesus did? What do you think Jesus Christ does? And if you've ever read the Gospel accounts, you see that no one responds to Jesus Christ moderately. If you look at the Gospels, I, I've, I've looked at them many, many times. You see, you see pe what, when people see Jesus doing things and they hear Jesus teaching. Nobody ever said, that's very thought-provoking, I'll have to think about it. Said nobody ever. Either people are terrified and they say, depart from me, or they're angry enough to attack him, or the most dramatic thing, the most traumatic thing that any human being could ever do is surrender to Jesus. Is surrender all to Jesus. No one responds moderately. And the theological and psychological answer to that question is that Jesus Christ, more than any other thing, more than any other person, triggers that natural hatred we have for anything that threatens our own self-centeredness, our own selfishness, our own self-sovereignty. Because Jesus makes incredible claims. Jesus says, I am your Lord, I am your judge. Jesus said, no one can follow me unless you hate your father and mother and even your own life. What does that mean? Well, it actually means that Jesus must be number one, that Jesus must have full priority. And only Jesus says how we should live. And then that triggers that rebellion. That triggers the rebellion in our hearts. So that's why I say the Bible just doesn't say we do not disbelieve in God. No, we hate him. And one of the ways that we hide our hatred of God is by creating pictures of God in our mind that we can control. A God that we can control, a God that we can chain, a God that we can master. And we hate the God of the Bible because we cannot master him. We really want a God that we can control, we can chain, we can arrest. We are on top of. So we create in our own minds a view of God and we say, this is the God I believe in. I believe in a God of love. This is the God I believe in. I don't hate God. And the very fact that you have to create a God you can master shows you hate a God you cannot. I remember R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul is one of the people I probably read the most. He taught on this subject and R.C. Sproul said this. He was, he was watching a talk show host on television interviewing an active, very active atheist. 
And they were debating whether there was a God. They were debating whether there was a God. And the host was losing the argument because the atheist was really smart. And so in desperation, the host thought, well, I know how to win this. He turned to the audience and said, how many of you believe in God? And virtually to a T, everyone put their hands up. And the kind of, he won, he kind of won. It's kind of reality TV, the atheist was voted out, I suppose. They all raised their hands. And R.C. Sproul reflecting on it, and R.C. Sproul's a great theologian, he's a reformed theologian, he's with the Lord now, but he said that they, the atheists missed their chance. Because they just sat there and took it. And he said, what the atheists should have done, this is R.C. Sproul, reformed Christian, said, he said, allow me to restate the question. How many of you believe in the God of the Bible? The God who, when he descends on Mount Sinai, says that anyone who touches the mountain must be killed. The God who says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The God who, when he is present in the Ark of the Covenant, and someone touches that Ark, they die. The God who had Job go through horrendous suffering, and at the end of the book of Job, he says, I'm not even going to tell you why it happened to you. I want you to trust me because I am God and you are not. How many of you believe in that God? And R.C. Sproul said that no one would have raised their hand. Because we hate that God. The fact that we create pictures that are under our control shows we hate the God we cannot master. Let me give you another quick example. There's another way to try and tame God, arrest God, master God, control God. That is in religion, because the religious view of God says, if I live a good life, if I pray, if I read the Bible, if I do good things, then God has to bless me. I don't know, I mean, one of my favourite films, and I'm going back like 20 odd years now, is Amadeus. Has anyone seen Amadeus? It's a really good film. It's about Soleri and Mozart. And when you see the film, you have to remember that it's fiction. And the real Soleri and Mozart might have been very different. But inside the film, this is what you have. Soleri says, when I, when I was a boy, I really loved God. And I gave the most noble prayer a boy could ever give. He prayed, Lord, make me a great composer. Bring great music into the world through me. So people will praise my very name. So that I will be immortally famous. Make me a great composer. Use me like that. In exchange, if you do that, I will give you my chastity. I will give you my industry. In other words, he was a very good person. He was devoted. He helped the poor. He was sexually chaste. He makes a big point of that. He lived a good life. And he said, Lord, make me a composer and use me. But then he came in, you know, the film goes on, and he came to realise that the gift that he asked God for had been given to Mozart. He was, a, he was a, a very immoral man. And when Soleri re realised that in spite of his good works, God had given a gift to an unworthy person, there was a dramatic scene when he's looking at the crucifix on the wall and he says, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. And he took the crucifix and threw it into the fire. It's very dramatic and it's, a, it's fiction, it's a film. But what he's saying is, I love God. I gave my life to God. God owed me. And he gave that wretch a talent that I don't have. So from now on, we're enemies. He didn't realise 
that he was always his enemy. That we are born that way. So look at the original prayer, very modest. Don't make me the greatest composer in my generation. I'll do all these things. You have to give it to me. What is that? That is not a biblical God. That's not the God of mercy and grace. That is a God that you can control through how hard you work. And the only reason you create a God like that is that you hate the God of the Bible. You want a God that you can control. Do you want a God that you can lead off in chains? When I look at my own life, I cannot understand myself. And I do not think you can understand yourself until I begin to see. It's not that I just am a really good person, kind of a good person who doesn't believe in God or fail to do what I ought to do. I'm angry at God in all sorts of ways. And the way that many do theology is an expression of that because we resist what the Bible says about God. The way that many do religious faith. The reason we resist the idea of the gospel of grace is that we want to create religions of good works because then I can control it. That way if I work really hard and when God doesn't give me what I think I want, when he crosses my will, I'll say, now, right now, you're an enemy of mine. No, I was always an enemy or I would have, wouldn't have felt that way. When I look at my prayer life, I can never hold on. God does something for me and I open my heart to him. I feel his presence and I'm so grateful. But three days later, my heart is so cold. Why? Because the heart is saying, what are you doing for me lately, God? There's a deep sense of ingratitude, a deep sense of entitlement, a deep sense that God owes me. We hate the idea of a God we cannot master, but is our master. We won't understand our emotions. We won't understand our attitudes towards life. We won't understand our history. Unless we see and admit and understand that we are characterised by sin. We're characterised by wrath. And what you have at the beginning part of this passage is the wrath of the human race against God. But here is the point of the first point. That is... Is that just? God has given us everything. God has given us life. God has given us breath. God sustains your life. He has given everything. He holds us together. He keeps us alive every second. So when he says, serve me, it is a rightful request. He gives us everything. And as he said in the Exodus, let my people go that they may worship me. And our response to that is fury. God says, serve me, because he has given us everything. And we make an unrightful response, which is to be angry. And do you know what that means? God is justly angry at us because of our unjust anger toward him. He is warranted in his wrath against our unwarranted wrath against and if you do not believe that the human race hates God, is born in sin, all of us, regardless of race, regardless of class, here is the ultimate proof. In that brief window of time, in that brief window of time, 33 years, in which the God of the universe became vulnerable, we killed him. We all did. 
So in some ways, the main point of the passage is to show you how warranted God's wrath is. But that is not all. The middle part is really strange, how controlled God's wrath is. Jesus is in complete control. Verse 4 says he knew everything that was going to happen. It was according to plan. Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. And I don't know why we translate it differently in, from the Greek. The Greek text is different. The English is trying to smooth it out. I don't know why we need to do this, to be honest. Because in the Greek, all Jesus says is, I am. I am. And I don't think there's really even any need for us to actually add, I am he. But all Jesus says is, I am. Why does Jesus say that? It's not grammatically correct, but it is theologically correct. And we've seen that already in John. It's beautiful. Moses met God in the burning bush and said, who are you? Who shall I say sent me? And God says, my name is I am. Tell them, I am sent you. Jesus has taken the divine name. We've seen that. John 8, 58. For Abraham was, I am. And everyone knew what Jesus was saying. He was claiming to be God. Jesus took the divine name on. And they were angry at him. But something here happens that is strange. He walks forward. They ask for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. And they all fall down. Do you see that? They all fall down. All their knees buckle. Roman soldiers. It happened, it's especially amazing, it happened to the Roman soldiers. They were battle-hardened. It would not have mattered what tone of voice Jesus used. It wouldn't have intimidated them. They can't even stand on their feet. They fall down. Commentators say, I can't understand this, I can't explain it. I have to go with what the commentators say that for a brief second a ray of glory came out. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Jesus' infinite power and glory is veiled, it is covered, it is hidden. But for one second it shows itself in order for us to see, for them to see. But here is the divine figure of power holding it back, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. We've just said that what we have here is the perfect depiction of the depiction of humanity's unjust anger toward God. What an act of injustice. They're coming to arrest Jesus. They're coming to take our Lord away. Is this not a time for God to express his wrath? Another film, I, don't, I really don't spend much time watching films, I really don't, and if I do, they're really old films. But I don't know how anyone's seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harrison Ford, all that thing. But it's about the Ark of the Covenant, it's in the film, the Holy Ark. And God's Ark, and evildoers come and steal it, they lift off the cover, it's a sci-fi, it's a thriller action film. And the God of the sci-fi thriller movie does what expect exactly what you would think he would do. He zaps them in the wrath of God. He electrocutes them. He melts a few. And if you're a child watching for the first time, you say the wrath of God, do not mess with God. 
That's how God acts in man's imagination, but that is not God. That is not God. These are the raiders. They've not come after an ark. They've come after the Messiah. They've come for the Saviour. Yet the real God controls his wrath. Why? And two reasons. The first is that God's wrath is always controlled. That's an important point to make. Some get very offended by the idea of the wrath of God. That God is angry at sin. We don't like this idea. We also have to remember that everything the Bible says about God is partly a picture. It has to be. When we say God is like a human shepherd, it does not mean that God is like every human shepherd. It means he is like a human shepherd in some respects. When we say God is father, it means he's like a father in some respects. When we say God is wrath, we have to be careful because we're not saying that God's anger is like our anger. That's how we think. God's anger is not like my anger. No. Especially when we get angry or we see other people get angry. Usually it's peak, it's ego, it's crankiness. It's not having had enough coffee. It's always losing your temper. And afterwards we wish we wouldn't have done it again. That's not God's wrath at all. We have to, we have to lose that. That's one of the reasons that people get offended. And people are really angry at the moment. They really are. And they've been for a few years. But social, what people write on social media is now they're saying in person. And it's not very pretty. And somebody even said last week, we should, we should all get angry. I'm thinking, you already are. How can you get more angry? But when we talk about God's wrath, God's wrath, it's talking about his settled opposition to sin, evil and injustice. And that's what you have in God. Which is why I like the term wrath, by the way. It's an older English word, but it... It's away from this idea because God's wrath is not temper. Sometimes people get angry if they come up behind somebody who's going slow. That's not God's wrath. That's your sinful anger. God's wrath is controlled because his wrath is always under control. It is never crankiness. It is never temper. The second reason that God's wrath is under control is because of the third point which is at this moment in the history of the world, God's wrath has been absorbed. And that's the third point, God's wrath absorbed. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Matthew's record says that Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. In here, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. (coughs) Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And in that phrase, you have something that's really amazing, absolutely amazing, the cup of the Father. You have a combination of terms that we modern people feel cannot be combined, but they are combined. And I've always said this is one of the most glorious things that happened at the cross. It's where love and mercy met. It's where love and justice met at the cross. It's the only place it meets at the cross. Because cup means wrath. And in ancient times, you executed criminals by giving them a cup. 
the cup of poison. That's how they executed Socrates. They would give a criminal a cup of poison. That's the reason in the Old Testament that God's wrath, his judicial opposition to evil, sin, injustice, is depicted in blood-curdling ways such as a cup. The metaphor is a cup of wrath, a cup of poison. Ezekiel 23, verse 33, you'll be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. A cup of horror and desolation. The cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and ignore its shards and tear your breasts for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. The person who drinks that cup stagger. Their insides are burning up. Isaiah 51, 22. Thus says the, your Lord, the, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. This is a blood-curdling statement of the fact that God is angry. He has warranted wrath against our unwarranted wrath. But it's the cup of the Father. It's not even the cup of God. That would be one thing. But the Father. What does the Father mean in John's Gospel? What does the Father mean in general? What does Jesus mean when he calls his God Father? He's talking about love, affection, patience. We say these things cannot come together. If he really is a loving God, our Heavenly Father, there should not be a cup. If he has a cup, then he's not a loving Father. What Jesus says, he is both. By saying, cup of the Father, Jesus is telling Peter, and Jesus is telling you and me what happened on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of the Father. So we don't have to. And if you don't understand that, that Jesus died for you, he drank the cup of wrath that you deserve to drink, your life will never be changed. I've had so many people tell me over many years, I do not believe in a God of judgment. When will you stop talking about it? I do not believe in a God who sends people to hell. I do not believe in a God of wrath. I do not believe in God's wrath on all of us. And I say, do you believe in Jesus? And many times they say, I do. And I say, well, why did Jesus come and die on the cross? They say, just to show us God's love. And what if you and a friend were standing side by side watching a bonfire, and all of a sudden a friend said, let me show you how much I love you, and ran and threw himself into the fire and died? Would you say, behold, how much he loved me? No. But if you're standing in front of a burning house and your child is in the house and your friend runs into the house and saves your child and dies in the attempt, you say, behold, how he loved us. If Jesus Christ dies, gives his life on the cross and we're not in any trouble, we don't have the wrath of God on us. We're not on our way to eternity without God. We're not lost. His death is not a sign of love. But if on the cross Jesus is doing what he is doing, which is drinking the cup of wrath that I deserve to drink, Jesus is fulfilling what Caiaphas prophesied he, without knowing it. Caiaphas was saying we must squash this man so the Romans don't come on us. This man should die so we live. 
Caiaphas didn't know what he was talking about, but he was pointing to substitutionary atonement, which meant that Jesus Christ is our perfect substitute. He died on the cross. He bore my sin. And if you believe in him, he bore your sin. He paid the price. He took the punishment. And on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. What was Jesus doing when he said it is finished? He drank the cup of the Father. And what does that mean? And this is the thing that is most precious to me, that at the cross we see how God can love us and be just exactly at the same time. On the cross. Because the cup of the Father means he is just and he is loving at the same time. And only if you see Jesus Christ taking the wrath of God will you see the magnitude of his love. If you say, I believe in a God who loves everybody, well, that's a sentimental view of God. And if you look at that, how will that change you? But if you believe that you deserve the wrath of God, that it is warranted for my unwarranted wrath against him, for my sin, there is this deserved anger, and Jesus took it. And first of all, that tells you that Jesus was not just suffering nails and thorns in the skull up there. He was bearing the wrath of God. So unless you believe in the wrath of God, you cannot believe in the love of God. You see my point? And you'll never have your heart changed by the sight of the love of God on the cross. And if you, you know that if you raise a child with only love and never lay down the law or a lot of rules and no love, either way you ruin the child. And right now, some people are growing up and they think their view of God is a, God, a view of God only of judgment. God laying down the rules, you had better be good and they live a life of fear. That will not deal with your sin. It makes it worse. And other people grow up with a view of God that he's just a loving God. He loves everybody and he's there to meet my need. And that won't deal with your sin either. Because as life goes on, he will not give you the life you want, you feel you deserve. You'll just be like Solari. But only if you believe that on the cross at Calvary, Jesus Christ drank the cup of the Father. That on the cross... The justice of God and the love of God were being perfectly fulfilled at the same time and equally. Only if you see Jesus drinking the cup of the Father will that humble you out of your anger and sin, affirm you out of your anger, and affirm you and humble you out of the fear of making him your master. Because when you see Jesus doing that, you'll fall on your knees saying, Lord Jesus, my Master, my King, my Lord. One of my favourite hymns growing up as a child was this, Death and the curse were in our cup. O Lord, t'was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last up drop, tis empty. Now for me, that bitter cup, love drank it up, left but the love 
for me. And that is the truth. If you put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus, he drinks the cup of judgment so you don't have to. What good news. Hallelujah. What a saviour. For his glory. Amen.